How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, and then we'll, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have this evening to gather together to study your word, to focus on the eternal truths that are here in your word, and to discover how you have structured the universe, how you have structured each one of us as a human being, and how you have structured our uh, social relationships as you have created them as described in the early chapters of Genesis. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to gather together to do this, that we have the freedoms in this nation that have been purchased for us on the many, many battlefields over the last 200 years. Father, we pray that you would continue to watch over us and protect us. There are many enemies, many who hate us, many who would seek to destroy us. And we know that behind the physical battle that is confronted, behind the antagonisms of the Arabs versus the Jews, behind the antagonism of the Islam for the West lies a an invisible war that is energized by Satan and the demons as they seek to destroy any impact of Christianity in the world today. Father, we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, for it stands alone in a nation that consistently and continue to send out missionaries who teach the gospel throughout the world, and a nation who stands behind Israel and in support of Israel. Father, we pray that this can continue and that you would continue to support our president and give him wisdom, give wisdom to his advisors and to the leaders in both the military sphere and the polit- and the civil sphere. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study tonight. You would help us to think more clearly about the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last time we started the divine institutions, building out of what we'd studied in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, where we have the prohibition not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So I want to review by going over divine institutions a bit and add some material to what we covered last time and take a new tact in terms of application into a realm of thought where I just set things up last time when we talked about labor. Review of divine institutions, point number one, divine institutions are absolute structures that are built into the structure of man, his makeup, his immaterial soul, how it operates, and thus his social relationships. These institutions were built into the structure by God from creation. These are not historically evolved customs, neither are they culturally relative conventions. That's what modern man wants to look at these, that marriage, that uh, how you look at responsibility, 
for actions for everything from financial responsibility to uh, moral decision, decisions, sexual inclination, everything. We have the tremendous debates go on over nature versus nurture, and there's so many because of an evolutionary framework argue that this is all nature. It is built into your genetic code. It's built into uh, <clears throat> your background, and you really don't have any choice. There's no responsibility or accountability for actions. So when it comes to divine institution number one, that's challenged. And once that goes down, all the other divine institutions go down as well. And the Bible teaches that these are not Customs that evolved historically as man moved from being a primitive near ape to being a more sophisticated uh, social creature. Uh, neither are they conventions that are adopted just by virtue of what works in one culture as opposed to another culture. It's not like how you dress or the type of architecture that your culture has developed. These are conventions or customs institutions built into the structure, the warp and woof of creation from the very beginning. Second point, there are five divine institutions. These divine institutions begin with human responsibility. Human responsibility, and then marriage, and then family. And it is interesting that these three divine institutions all have their root in Genesis 1 and 2. Human responsibility is specifically in 2:15 to 17. Marriage comes up in the passage today, 2:18 to 25, and the idea of family is embedded in 1. 26 to 28, where man is told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This was not an empty command waiting for man to fall before it would begin. Man was envisioned as being productive across the board even before the fall. So we are going to see that these first three divine institutions have an internal cohesion. They are related to one another in a very uh, detailed manner. The fourth divine institution is human government, which is instituted at the Noahic Covenant in Genesis chapter 9, and it is not until Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel and the breakup of languages that God establishes uh, national entities. So these are the five divine institutions. Now, point number three, we said that each divine institution has an authority structure. Each divine institution has an authority structure. If man is responsible, he is responsible to someone. So in human responsibility, man is responsible to God, and God is the authority over man. We saw that in our study of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. In marriage, the authority is the husband. In the family, the authority is the parents. In human government, the authority is the executive branch, 
what, how, whatever that is under whatever system of government there might be, whether that involves a king in a monarchy, an elite group in an oligarchy, a president, a prime minister, a dictator, a Caesar, whatever the form of government might be, there is always an executive branch that's the ultimate authority in that nation. Then we have a national entity, and all national entities are going to be judged by God eventually. So God is the authority over the nations. Fourth divine institution, going back, I mean the fourth point, going back to the first divine institution of human responsibility, I pointed out that there were three things that we see in our look at human responsibility. First of all, there is volition. Responsibility entails volition, the ability to choose to obey God or to disobey God. That is the orientation of volition. Positive volition to obey God, negative volition to disobey God. The second thing that is entailed in human responsibility is accountability. Man is answerable for the decisions he makes to God. And the third thing I pointed out is that this also involves responsible labor. Responsible labor. And that led us to the class last time where we looked at labor itself. And this time I want to define labor. By labor I don't mean that which we normally think of as labor today, which is unpleasant toil. But that labor, let's define it under point number five, labor is defined as responsible service to God that was a pleasurable and enjoyable activity involving the creature's creativity and which is exercised under the authority of God. Labor is defined as responsible service to God that was a pleasurable and enjoyable activity involving the creature's creativity under the authority of God. We have to go back at this point to remember the creator-creature distinction. The creator creates. Now, he creates from nothing. He creates ex nihilo. He creates on the basis of omniscience, which means he knows all the knowable. Yet he has created mankind in his image, and as an image bearer, the creature, at the creaturely level, imitates the creator, and he too creates, but in a derivative fashion, so that he doesn't create to the same extent the creator does. This is foundational for understanding so much that comes later in Scripture. If you lose the creator-creature distinction, then you're going to have tremendous difficulty with many different doctrines in Scripture. Man as the creator, man as the creature in the image of God, functions under the authority of the creator. And the creator is the one who sets the boundaries which which sets the boundaries on every area of human knowledge. And what happens is in the fall, the creature rejects the creator's authority and he kicks out these fences and he wants to define everything on his own terms. So he wants to create autonomously. 
He doesn't want to start with God as his ultimate reference point. He doesn't start with the Bible as his ultimate reference point. He wants to think that, that um, well, the Bible is fine as far as spiritual things go and as far as addressing my spiritual condition, but the Bible uh, doesn't really address all these other areas of life. And what I've been demonstrating as we've gone through the last 26 hours of Genesis is that the Bible does address every area of life. It may not be a history book. It may not be a science book. It may not be a manual of economics. It may not be a a geology textbook. But it gives us the framework for understanding all of these things. And as I pointed out last time, man is given certain potentials, and man is given the natural resources and the intellectual resources to take what God has given them and to explore it, to develop it, and to understand it. And that is part of his exercise of dominion over the planet. But there's only so much he can do on a knowledge base that is independent of God. So we go back to our basic chart, understanding that there's four different ways to understand truth. The first is rationalism. The second is empiricism. The third is mysticism. And the fourth is revelation. And when Adam was in the garden, he could have discovered, and he did discover, many, many different things that were true about the creation. He was, as we're going to see in our study this evening, he has to categorize and classify the animals. That entails observation, evaluation, number of other mental activities, and he would name the animals, and those names would reflect something about their essential characteristics. So he discovered many things that were true with a small t. But if it weren't for the fact that God told him about the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, he could not have figured out that if he ate from that tree that he would die. And see, that's the point, is rationalism and empiricism, if they operate independently from God, they're going to miss vital elements of the structure. It's like you may have a house, and you may have all the right elements in the house, but if you don't put it together correctly, it's going to fall apart in a storm. And in empiricism and rationalism, you may come up with a variety of different elements that are true, but some elements may not be true. You may come up with some things that look like they fit into that system, and they're not really true. They seem to be, perhaps, they seem to be logically consistent with 60% of what is true. But because you don't have certain information, and man in his autonomy wants to exclude revelation as a source of knowledge from everything from biology to history to philosophy to economics to politics to law, once you exclude the Bible as having something, not only something significant to say about those areas of, of human intellection, but that they, it provides the starting point and the boundaries for all activities in those areas. Once you, if you exclude the Bible from the beginning, then what you end up with is you, you don't have a referee anymore. You don't have an umpire. Someone to tell you what is exclu- what you should include and what you should uh, exclude from your empirical and rational conclusions. And so if you're a scientist and you're going out and you're investigating um, 
the world around us and you come across with you come across a variety of fossils there are many different ways you might interpret those fossils you know that it's obviously something that was once alive and now it's dead and so you could interpret that a number of different ways and in evolution because they exclude revelation the revelation of God in the Scripture, they come to the conclusion that this is something that happened as a result of gra- gradual processes in nature. It's a result of time plus chance plus an imp- impersonal universe, and they come up with various different conclusions. But if they had started off with revelation, they would know that they have to exclude the idea of time plus chance plus an impersonal universe, and so they, they must interpret it some other way. And the best interpretation is on the basis of flood geology. So on the basis of flood geology, then, you're operating within a certain set of boundaries that preclude you from wasting your time running down the rabbit trail of a, a lot of rationalistic and empirical uh, speculation. And this happens in many different areas. So we're starting off by saying that labor, point number five, labor is defined as responsible service to God that was a pleasurable and enjoyable activity involving the creature's creativity that is exercised under the authority of God. That provides the framework. Then point number six, we looked at the basic biblical mandates. There are five mandates that relate to labor in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28. Let's look at verse 28 and break it down. First of all, man is to be fruitful. Second, he is to multiply. This has to do with procreation and the expansion of the human race. God did not intend for Adam and Eve to stay childless there is a, they are envisioned as multiplying producing offspring to fill the earth and subdue it that's the next two commands fill the earth and subdue it they could not do this on their own now some people have suggested that well eve could not get would not get pregnant before the fall obviously no it's not obvious in fact, it runs counter to strict interpretation of Scripture. If, if she could not get pregnant and start having children producing prior to the fall, then this becomes an empty, meaningless mandate because it's not something that they could do. And we went over that when we studied it in detail. These five imperatives are are all linked together. You can't just go in and pick and choose. They are to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and to have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So that sets the stage for man's labor. He is to rule over the planet. Now this is expanded in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 2. Verse 15 gives a little more precision. And there we ran across two words that are very important. The first is the Hebrew word avad, and the second is the Hebrew word shamar. Avad is spelled A-B-A-D, and shamar is S-H-A-M-A-R. Now, last time... 
I didn't realize it at the time when I taught the passage the last time, but there is a slight problem in the text here. In both of these words, they end with a patach and a he, that's this Hebrew letter here, that's got this little dot in the middle of it. At least that's how it appears in my Hebrew text. But there's a textual problem here, and in many text, the dot, which is called a makith, is not present. Now that makes a tremendous difference. If there's a dot there, then what you have is a third feminine singular ending. He will work it and keep or guard it. Now the it in context appears to be the Garden of Eden. Now, the problem is that garden is a, looks like this, G-A-N in the Hebrew. This is a masculine singular noun. You see a difference, problem? Here you have a feminine singular suffix and a masculine singular noun. So they have to agree in gender. So this is a major problem. And a number of Hebrew manuscripts do not contain the dot, the makif, in that final hay. In which case, both of these have a lamet at the front of them, which, makes, which is the preposition to, and makes them infinitives. But the way you would translate it, if that little dot isn't there, is not as an infinitive to work it, but you would translate it, into English as a gerund for service because the idea of abad is service and for guarding. So this is has taken me a couple of weeks digging around in a lot of different resources trying to uh, resolve where the tension uh, lay in all of this. And this is how it should be handled, that this brings in the idea of worship and the fact that man is created to serve God and to guard the garden. Now, this would include watching over the garden, but it includes the whole principle of exercising dominion over the planet. Now, this is a foundation for the study we had last time, which was on the subject of labor. The subject of labor. Now, I want to take this, I want to go into a new direction with it this evening, and I want to look at how this lays the groundwork for, th- for thinking biblically about economics. Economics is the study of value. It's the study of value is what a market places on a person's productivity. Now, the big question, or one of the big questions in economics, is whether or not value is determined objectively or subjectively. In other words, is value inherent in the thing itself? For example, is gold inherently valuable, or is a diamond inherently valuable, or is value something that is imputed by man, or is value imputed by God? So you have on the two sides here, on one side we're going to put objective value, and over here, subjective value. 
Now, historically, in the history of economics, the idea that things had an objective value dominated thought up until the late 1800s, to let's just use a round figure, the 1870s. And then in the 1870s, there developed a school of thought called the marginal theory of value. Sometimes it's called the subjective value theory. So we have the development of the marginal theory of value. Now, I'm going to do my best to try to explain this because economics is not my field, but I've been doing a lot of study and reading in this area, just as biology and geology aren't my field. Nevertheless, I can get into this and develop a few ideas to perhaps goad someone into a more detailed study of economics. See, we don't have Christians thinking biblically about the disciplines of life, the intellectual disciplines of life, and then going out and studying them within a biblical framework. So all I am attempting to do this evening is to provide the fact that there is a biblical framework for thinking about economics, just as we've said about dealing with philosophy, just as we've said about dealing with uh, history or biology or geology. Now, when you come up with this question about objective or subjective value. That's the real issue. What brings value to something? If you take gold, is gold inherently valuable? I mean, is there a set price on gold, a set value on gold? Or is this value simply something that is imputed by man and is determined subjectively by the individual at a certain uh, point in time? Let me give you an example. There's a classic example that's used in economics called the diamond water uh, paradox, and I'm going to boil it down for us, and we're going to use a historical example. Let's say you're Francesco Coronado, and you're headed north with an expedition into uh, Mexico, Texas, and Kansas looking for the fabled seven cities of gold at Cibola. And let's say for the sake of argument that you actually discovered one of the seven cities of gold, and now you have a whole donkey train of gold that you're going to haul back to Mexico City. And after you find this stash of gold and you're headed back across what's called the Llano Estacado in Texas, the Staked Plains, which is a miserable place to be in the summer if it's hot and dry, you're, you're out of, about out of water and you're out of food, but you have a lot of gold. Now, if someone comes along and they have 50 barrels of flour, you're going to pay all, be willing to pay, give all your gold for that flour. However, if you were to go to London or Paris or Madrid at that time, then where there's an abundance of flour, you would not be willing to give that much gold for that amount of flour. So you see, the value of the flour is subjectively determined by the circumstances and the situation. Gold does not have an absolute value. It has a relative value. So this is the argument from the idea of the subjective uh, theory of value. Let's stop a minute and just think about value as we've understood it in the first chapter of Genesis. 
First of all, God evaluated his labor in chapter 1. We saw that he pronounced what he had done good in verse 4 and verse 10, verse 12, verse 18, verse 25. When it was all done, he said it was very good. Now, that doesn't mean it was righteous. I've pointed that out several times. And when we'll see that tonight, that the word tov does not necessarily mean righteous. But what it means is that God had a standard. He had a blueprint. He had a plan of action to which the the creation corresponded. It would be like an an architect or building engineer having all of his plans, and each day he goes down to the building site at the end of the day to see what the uh, what has been done on that building site that day, and he checks it over to make sure that it fits with the plan. And if it fits with the plan, he says it's good. It fits the plan. It, it's exactly what I intended it to be. And so when it was over with, God is imputing... Actually, he's imputing value to the creation because he says it's valuable. The earth has no value. The minerals, the resources have no uh, value in and of themselves, no set value in and of themselves without any creatures being there. So we say that God says that the creation is good, and it is good because God says so, not because it is intrinsically good. This means that there is some sort of external objective standard to which everything in creation conforms. Now, this takes us right back to our chart. I'm going to draw it again. Up here we have the creator, and we're going to draw a line, and we have the creation down here. Not just the creature, but the creation. Now, the creation has value because God says it has value because he has a standard an absolute standard in heaven. So he states that the creation itself has value. He has, though, it's not intrinsic value. It's value that the Creator says is there, and the term that we use for this is imputed value. As soon as I say that word imputed, you're ears ought to be wiggling a little bit. You see, this is going to have implications for soteriology. Think about how, we'll we'll get there before I'm done, we'll see how many economic terms are used in the explanation of our salvation. So we have imputed value. So then when God creates man in his image, Man, as an image bearer, is to do certain things that reflect God. So just as God imputes value to the creation, man, the creature, the image bearer, also reflects his creator by imputing value to things that are inside the creation. This is fits the subjective concept of the marginal um, theory of value. The man is given certain tasks to perform then, including the naming of the animals. Now, in the naming of the animals, what do you have? Observation, evaluation. See, when he's observing and he's going to categorize and classify, he's got to do, go through, make judgments. There's got to be evaluation. Evaluation always implies some sort of standard. And so God has, God has uh, developed all these resources, whether they're animal or whether they're mineral. 
He's established all of these resources for man, and it is up to man to discover them, to categorize and classify them, do all the studies, and to properly utilize them under the authority of God. See, this is the biblical view. Up here you have the Creator, and He sets the boundaries, and man operates within the framework of those boundaries established by God. So when man is involved in the process of evaluating, he is going to be assigning value to the different elements of creation. Now this whole process in lays the basic principles that should govern a biblical framework for understanding economics. Now, when we talk about the assignment or location of value in economics, and we talk about the marginalist theory of value, we're, I want to relate this a little bit to what's going on today. Since the 1870s, Due to the thought of three men, Carl Menger, who lived from 1840 to 1921, uh, W. Stanley Jevons, who lived from 1835 to 1882, and Leon Walrus, who lived from 1834 to 1910, they developed the, these are economists who developed the uh, marginal theory of value. Now this is a major plank in what is called today the Austrian School of Economics kind of the father of the Austrian School of Economics, is Ludwig von Mises. And we have the Ludwig von Mises Institute, and they crank out a lot of very good information. And But there's some problems there. Just like every system of thought that gets operates autonomously from the Word of God, they get into some problems. And this is made clear in a statement by von Mises himself, and I quote from von Mises, quote, We may leave aside the genuine dogmas such as creation, incarnation, the Trinity, as they have no direct bearing on the problems of interhuman relations. Now think about that last statement. They have no direct bearing on the problems of interhuman relations. See, economics has to do with human relationships. Sociology, marriage, family, all these things have to do with human relationships. But money is one of the most uh, foundational. Economics, value, labor, all this is foundational to society. Yet von Mises says the Bible has nothing to say, no direct bearing on the problems of interhuman relations. So what he has done from the very beginning in the setting up his theory of economics is that he comes along and he excludes anything and everything that the Creator says because it just from the beginning it doesn't have any value. See, that's the same thing that happens in autonomous science and evolution and in, in sociology and psychology is that is excluded. Now, that doesn't mean that there are problems or that everything the Austrian School of Economics says is wrong. I'm just taking that as a as a as an illustration, in fact, they have much to say that is very good, and I enjoy reading a lot of their materials, and they are, it's quite interesting. Now, as I've said, what all this goes to is understanding the concept of imputed value. Now, the basic idea that is seen, in, or the problem that, is, that we're dealing with here, is the problem of value. 
And part of the illustration, I used a model of it a minute ago, but it's called the classic, uh, it's the classic a diamond water paradox. And the paradox is that if value is intrinsic, and see, some people want to think that value is intrinsic. For many years, that idea dominated economics. If value is intrinsic, then if you were to have a have water, which is a substance that's necessary for life, you would think that it would be more valuable than a diamond because diamonds really aren't valuable. You have to have water to live. Well, in the diamond water paradox, we have a lot of water. Water isn't as valuable as a diamond. And it's because we have a tremendous amount of water, and so we don't utilize it based on need. Now, if you're out in the desert, you're going to be utilizing it based on need. And perhaps a gallon of water out in the desert, if you don't have any water, would be worth many diamonds to you. But because the supply of water is great, the demand is low, and whereas the supply of diamonds is low, they have a higher value. Now, the positive contribution of the marginalist or subjectivist school of economics is simply the recognition that value is imputed by man the creature. If people, one of their, one statement that a marginalist said was if people value it, it has value. If people don't value it, it doesn't have value. There's no intrinsic value. Now the point that I'm making in all of this is it's fine as far as it goes and it does recognize a built-in establishment principle and that is that value is imputed by acting men. When we impute value to something, it is analogous to God imputing value in the creation. But God's imputation of value assumes that there is an absolute standard, an absolute standard. And when you start off with a theory of economics or anything and you reject that absolute standard from the beginning, then you have a problem. What we have, let's go back to our system, we have a creator who has built in a certain intrinsic value into some things. And yet there is also imputed value. It's not a case of either or. Let me give you an example. You take the Bible and you take pornography. And our, as a Christian, we look at the Bible and we say the Bible has incredible value. But in a free market situation, in a decadent or perverted society like the one in which we live, the Bible is not going to necessarily have the same value in the open marketplace as pornography will. And we see the growth and the development of the uh, whole pornographic industry. In fact, uh, I have seen several reports that suggest that a lot of the technology that's developed on the Internet has been driven by the pornography market. So in a decadent society, the Bible may have little or no value in the free marketplace, and pornography, on the other hand, is highly valued and highly praised. Nevertheless, God has said that the Bible is to be more desired than gold, Psalm 19. So we have a situation here where we have two things being true. We have intrinsic value and we have imputed value. Now this helps us understand all the dynamics of the cross. Because what we have at the cross is a situation where you have intrinsic value in the positive righteousness 
of Jesus Christ. And then you have a relative value in the minus R of the believer. Yet it is God who, because of, based on the faith of the believer, imputes the righteousness of Christ to the believer and then on the basis of that saves the believer. And what are the terms we use for this? This is called redemption. What is redemption? It is the purchase of the unbeliever. Why? Because Jesus Christ paid a price for the, uh, for the fallen creature on the cross. He paid that price so that the debt of sin against us was canceled. And because the debt of sin is canceled, because the purchase price has been paid, because righteousness has been imputed to the believer, the Creator then can save us and restore the value that man had initially, because that was, again, an imputed value. So, what all I'm saying in developing all of this is man's imputation of value, which we see in economic theory, simply reminds us of the imputation of value by the Creator, and all of this is utilized to speak about the work of Christ on the cross. Notice we talk about the what? The work of Christ on the cross. The labor of Christ on the cross pays a price which cancels the debt, purchases the believer from the slave market of sin, which is called redemption, so that his righteousness can be imputed to the believer. See, you didn't know that just simple economics really had a soteriological message to it. But this is why all thought in the thinking of God is going to be related to every other type of thought, and that's why the believer has to bring every area of thought into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul says in Second Corinthians, that we are to bring every thought into submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. So last time we looked at the idea of the first divine institution and we saw that it entails volition, it entails accountability, and it entails uh, responsible labor. Now let's go to the next section which gets us into the divine institution of marriage. Genesis 2.18 God says, the Lord God says, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. The first thing we note is that it is Yahweh Elohim speaking here. And to the Jew who's reading this, this is, this is a reminder that this is the same Lord God who has entered into covenant and contract with Israel at Sinai. And this God has the best interests of man at heart. And he says, it is not good that man, and here it should be translated the male, it is not good that the male should be alone. And the first thing he notes here is it's not good. Well, this is why I've been saying all along and emphasizing that this Hebrew word, tov, T-O-V, it's a soft B, so it's pronounced like a V, this tov, good, is not a moral good. See, you're going to run into people all the time, and and we've had people here in this pulpit that you know that are fine men, some of my best friends, who uh, don't agree with me on this. Neither can they answer me on this, frankly. Now, they have things I can't answer, but 
they can't answer me on this. They want to argue that when God says at the end of the seven days that everything was very good, that very good necessarily excludes evil. So their argument is that Satan hasn't fallen yet. Now, I don't believe that, and one of the problems is that if good has a moral context to it, then it is immoral for man to be single. Because God is saying it's not good for man to be alone. So that it shows the logical fallacy in treating tov as a word that has an inherent moral connotation. It does not. What God is saying here is it doesn't fit my plan. It doesn't fit my purpose or how I design man. Remember Genesis chapter 2 from verse 4 on is giving us the uh, details of what took place during the sixth day of creation. Just those verses that are described in Genesis 1, 26 uh, through 31. So here this is halfway through the day and it's not good. It's not yet according to plan. For man to be alone, I need to make a a helper for him. And here we come to a word that the feminists just grind their teeth over, and this is the Hebrew word etzer. E T Z E R. And etzer means to be a helper, to be an assistant to be someone who would come alongside the man and help him achieve the goal that God set for him. Now, remember back in Genesis 1:26, God said, "Let us make man in our image according to our um, according to our likeness." And then verse 27, "So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them." So we'll put image over here, and we have male and female, and they are both created in the image of God. So together they represent the image of God in exercising dominion over the planet. Now the role is that the man is the one, and as I said last time, who gets the call. By that I mean it is the man who has the uh, the vocation, which is from the Latin word meaning to call, has the vocation, and it is the female who is to come alongside and be the helper. This has tremendous implications for dating and marriage. But before we get to that, I want to go over a couple of verses to show that being a helper is an extremely high position. We have a culture that says if you're an assistant, if you're the number two person, if you're the assistant chairman, the vice president, the number two guy, then you just aren't as important as the number one guy. And the feminist philosophy has picked this up to make women think that if you're a helper, that somehow this is a a low position, that you have been devalued as a human being and as an individual, and you're nothing more than a slave or a servant. And yet this has, just that accusation has theological implications. For example, in Psalm 33:20, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our what? He is our help and our shield. God is our eighter. So if somehow being an eighter 
is a secondary class position, a second class position, then you're making a statement about God, that that's a second class thing for God to do. Psalm 70, verse 5. But I am poor and needy. Make haste to me, O God. You are my help, Azer, and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Again, this is used in Psalm 115.9. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their Azer and their shield. And then in Exodus 18.4, we have the use of Azer in a name. Uh, the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help. And Eliezer is from uh, the Hebrew word for God, which you'll recognize there is E-L. The I is the first person uh, common singular suffix, meaning mine. So my God, and then Azer is help. My God, my God is my help. So that is what that name means. Again and again, God is referred to as an Azer. So this is a very high view. In fact, when Jesus came at the first advent, he came. I, he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So the very image of Christ as a Redeemer is the image of an Azer, someone coming to give help, to give assistance, so that man can be what God intended him to be. And so in the uh, in the marriage, you have a corporation where the man is the one who is the leader. I always try to emphasize leadership as opposed to being an authority because there's always a lot of men who, because of the fall, just want to go out and exercise their authority in a tyrannical manner. And that is not the picture that we see of leadership in the Scripture. The man is the authority. He is the leader. He is the one who has the calling from God, the job, the vocation, and the woman is to help. And how a woman helps her husband be successful as they seek to exercise dominion in whatever sphere God's put them in is a function of her creativity, where she is reflecting her being, her, her, her being in the image of God and exercising creativity in that uh, in that arena. Now, in in marriage, what we see is the, a situation today too often where the man and the woman do not have a real plan as to why they get married. And the picture that we see in Scripture is the man needs to identify his calling before the woman ought to marry him because she needs to discover whether or not she wants to help him achieve the calling that God has given him. And too often what happens is what some, some many of us think we want to do when we're 22 years of age or 20 years of age is not what we end up doing when we're 30 years of age. I think there's only, I read some figures one time, I don't want to make anything up, but it's an extremely small percentage of college graduates who five years later are earning their income in their, the field of their major in college. So when you get out of college and you're 22 years of age, by the time you're 28, you're going to be doing something completely different. So you need to wait to get married until, especially the ladies, uh, women need to wait to get married until they know what that guy is going to do. Furthermore, the man needs to needs to recognize that he has a responsibility to take care of the home and take care of the family. And this is going to be demonstrated in the next couple of verses. And, for example, Proverbs 24, 27. 
Prepare your work outside and make it ready for yourself in the field afterwards, then build your house or then build your home. This is an injunction in Proverbs to men to first establish their work and establish a financial basis for the family and then build a home in terms of getting married and having children and that. What happens today and what puts incredible pressure on marriages is that they get couples get married too soon. The guy doesn't know what he wants to do. It forces the wife to get out and work full time. They never get themselves established and it ends up often coming back to haunt both of them in the marriage. Now we see a pattern develop in Genesis 2:19 and following. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Now God has a purpose for this. Notice in verse 18, God recognized that it wasn't good for man to be alone. But this hadn't dawned on Adam yet. He hadn't been around that long. He's just, you know, an hour or so old. And he hasn't quite recognized this. So before God creates the woman, he's going to cause Adam to recognize that there is a need there for the woman. So the first thing God does is he... He takes the beast. Now, on the sixth day, he also formed the beasts. And if you look at Genesis um, 123, they're defined as the beasts of the earth. But here they're defined as beasts of the field. And the difference is that these are the domesticatable beasts, and they're not the wild beasts in every category of, of uh, animal that you find in Genesis chapter 1. So the, God, the Lord God now forms every beast of the field, and it would seem that the order of creation on that day is first God made the beasts of the earth, then he made Adam, then he makes the beasts of the field, then he makes the woman. That seems to be the order here. And he's going to bring the beasts and the birds to Adam to see what he would call them. This is a function of Adam's creativity as the image of God. He has to do the observation. God is not going to tell him what to call the animals. We don't have divine guidance here. There are many areas in life when we don't have divine guidance. God is not going to tell you this is how you cut the grass. This is how you pay your bills. God leaves many things open to you to exercise your volition and to function in the realm of creativity. See, the test isn't as much what you decide to do is how you decide to do it. They're both part of the package. Sometimes God has specific designated things he wants us to do. He has specific geographical will or he has a specific uh, job or task for us. But many times there are the things are open. So that is an opportunity for us to exercise our creativity. So Adam is going to evaluate and examine the animals that are brought before him, and notice that some of them are like other animals. He'll pair them up, and he will identify them and give them names. And these names would say something about the nature of that uh, that creature. So, verse 20, we're told, So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. Notice it's all the domesticatable kinds that were in the garden, not every single type of animal on the planet, uh, to the birds of the air and those that were in the garden, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a, an Aetzer 
corresponding to him, literally in the Hebrew, corresponding to him. It is the preposition ka plus the noun uh, neget. So there's no corresponding comparable pattern. So Adam is uh, recognizes that he's alone. All the other animals have pairs. And it's at this point that God has prepared Adam for the next act. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. God was an anesthetician and started the process of surgery here. Once again, you have to start every discipline with the Word of God. I'm just being a little facetious. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs. Now, the word here for ribs in verse 21 is the Hebrew word tzelah. It's the Hebrew word tzelah, and it doesn't really mean rib. T-Z-E-L-A-H. It doesn't mean rib, it means side. This is the only place in about 25 uses of the word in the Old Testament that it's translated rib. It has to do with bone and flesh that's taken, which is why, uh, which is, it must be because Adam will say, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So it's not just taking out bone, it's taking out flesh, the muscle, everything that went with it, and from that God fashions the woman. He took one of his ribs. He closes up the flesh in its place. It's interesting. He doesn't leave it open or leave leave him uh, mangled for life. Then in verse 22, Then the rib, or the side, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Literally, he, the Lord God uh, uh, built from the rib... A woman. And the word there is banats, our fourth Hebrew word now for creation. He built the woman. He fashioned her from the rib. And many have noted that it's, it's symbolic value that he takes the woman from the side of the man. He doesn't take from the head indicating superiority or from the feet indicating that she would be uh, in a place of servitude, but from his side because he, she is going to be serving side by side as together they exercise dominion over the planet. They are to be a partnership, a team, and like on any team, there is one who is the primary leader and the other who is the follower or the helper. And that is the situation with Adam and Isha. And we read in verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She is one with me. This is Hebrew idiom for the fact that she is one with him. She shall be called Isha. The Hebrew word for male is the word Ish. Looks like this. I-S-H. And Isha, you simply add the feminine ending, and it's I-S-H-A-H. Isha, so she is initially called Isha because she was taken out of man. Then I want you to notice the next verse. The next verse says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
Adam spoke in verse 23, but Adam isn't speaking here. Adam doesn't say this. He doesn't have the concept of father and mother down just yet. He's not talking about this. This is typical in Genesis where Moses, remember Moses is writing this to the Jews, and he, he makes application. He says this is what happened, and in different places he inserts a statement that is an editorial comment by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he is teaching the Jews about the origin of man and the origin of marriage. And then after Adam makes the statement that she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, then Moses says, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother. Notice it's the male, not the female in Jewish culture, the man would stay at home, and his uh, orientation and his allegiance was to his parents to take care of them until he was married. Then he would leave their home and set up his own home. He would leave his father and be joined to his wife. And here the Hebrew word is dabak, which has the idea not simply of sexual union, although that is definitely uh, part of the word, but it has the idea of a full union with the woman as they become one together spiritually, psychologically, and physically. It's interesting, though, that in the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, when, the New, when Paul quotes from this, in the New, the New Testament Greek uses the word for joined that, is, that means uh, sexual union. So it definitely has that as a major overtone. But the Hebrew word dabak is not restricted to sexual union. So he leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then verse 25 really sets the stage for the next chapter. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they're not ashamed. They're naked, they're exposed, they're not ashamed because with no sin or sin nature, though they're, they're naked and they, they, without a sin nature, they don't have a comprehension of all of the evil ways uh, that, can, that can, all the evil things that can come from uh, perverted sex. So therefore there is no embarrassment over this. There is no shame. They are open, they are vulnerable, and there is no sense of danger, no sense of being taken advantage of. This is going to be in contrast to what happens in the next chapter. Because in verse 1 of chapter 3 we're told, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. And the word for naked and the word for cunning are words that are very similar. And so there is a definite pun or wordplay in the Hebrew which is setting, set up by this contrast. They're naked, and in contrast to them being unashamed and open, they're now you hear the, the bass in the background as the evil villain starts to work his way onto the scene in chapter 3. So we will come back and start chapter 3 next time with our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the insight that your word gives us into every area of thought. Pray that you would help us as we think about these things and you would challenge us 
to pursue more diligently an understanding of all of creation from a biblical viewpoint. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.